Good morning, everyone. My name is Ji. I serve as executive pastor here at the City Life Church. If your first yeah. time with us, great to have you join us this morning. And this morning, I actually have an honor uh, and privilege to introduce our speaker today. He's someone you, that you already know. If you don't know, you get to meet an amazing, amazing friend and the man of God. <laughs> um, Scott Fiddler. Uh, is a, a very, very uh, prominent and successful lawyer here in Houston, Texas. He is part of a Jackson and Walker. Uh, he's been serving as employment lawyer, but also he's original. He's an OG of civil rights lawyer, if I understand correctly. So uh, he is going to be sharing the word with us this morning. So if you don't mind, please give a warm City Live welcome to D. Scott <laughs> Fitzgerald. <laughs> Thanks, and thanks, G, for that uh, introduction. And I want to give G a plug, too, on, on T. Roche um, Expeditions. Got it? Got it? Um, so, and some of you have heard this story. This is an absolutely true story. But back in 2010, I think it was, uh, we didn't have a pastor. And so Cindy and I were kind of leading the church, and I was preaching three or four times a, a month, and I was... Uh, also running my law practice, um, all by the grace of God. Um, sounds like an insurmountable thing now looking back on it. But G came just and said, hey, we're going to Israel because G leads these, these trips to Israel. Do you want to go? And um, we said, you know, what Christians say when they don't really want to do something, you know, we'll pray about it. <laughs> we'll get back to you, you know. And uh, so we did. And I told Cindy, and this is, this is absolutely true. I told Cindy, you know, I, I'd never really had a desire to go to Israel and I always told Cindy, you know, I'll, I'll, go to, I'll go to Israel when they figure out how to get a cruise ship into Jerusalem. You know, that's when I'm going. Because we were big cruisers, you know. We liked the luxury of the cruise, you know, food and everything. Um, so anyways, we pray about it separately. Cindy and I do. We come back together. I said, I know this sounds weird because it makes no sense in the natural. We don't have time. But I think we're supposed to go to Israel. And Cindy said, I think we're so, supposed to go too. So we went more out of obedience than anything. Um, but it is life-changing. It is a life-changing. You can see people shaking their heads because a lot of people in here have been. So um, it's very affordable, and you're going to get to hear one of the best teachers in the world. Celebrities uh, have sometimes asked this teacher to lead expeditions, and he's waved them off, right? He waved them off because he thought, you know, I don't know who that guy is. He asked, yes, G said, G said, you don't know who so-and-so is? He goes, no, I never heard of him, <laughs> whatever. But this guy loves Jesus, and he's a great teacher. So little plug, but it, it's, a, it's a great experience. So um, we start today, I was going to say, I start today a new series called A Generous Life, The Beauty in Giving, um, but it's actually a one-off. So it's only one message. It's a series if you heard the first message this morning. Uh, so I guess Cassie and G and some of the others get the series. You only get one. Um, but it's on giving. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving is a great time because we get together and we thank God. I mean, that's the purpose of Thanksgiving is to thank the Lord for all that we have. And you know, you, you tend to set aside the things you think you want, the things you need, that you think are keeping you from being happy, and you focus on what God has given you. And it's a real good time to kind of reset, right? Emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And then the next day is Black Friday. You know, when the world is telling you, you need this, today's the day. You know, you've got to buy it, you know, 40% off. And, you know, I get caught up in it, too. We think we need the things, you know, in the stores to make us happy. And I've done this, Cindy and I have done this before, where I've said, I, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to go out on 
Black Friday, let's just go shopping. You know, I'm going to go buy some clothes or I'm going to buy something. Because buying stuff makes you feel good, right? But I think you women, you call this retail therapy, right? <laughs> Guys, we don't have a word for it, you know. <laughs> we just go out and buy things, buy stuff, you know. But there's something about it, right? I mean, I've bought things, you know, and, you know, don't even use them. But there's something about buying something, you know, you just feel good. It kind of gives you kind of a joy or peace or something. And so we spend our lives chasing after things, you know, things that we buy that we think are going to make us happy. And then there are the big ticket items like cars and houses, right? And I remember back when I was in law school, I wanted a uh, Nissan 300ZX. And some of you are going, what's a 300ZX? Because well, we're on 350 now, right? It's a 350ZX, right? Okay. So back then, I wanted a black Nissan 300ZX. And I thought, if I can get that, I'll be happy, right? That's all I need. That's going to complete me, you know? You all of you had this feeling about cars, right? And then you buy it, you drive it for a few years, and then you're looking at the next one, you know? Same things with homes. I remember we bought our first home. Cindy and I were living in a little apartment back in what, the salad days. That's what they call it. Back when we couldn't afford anything else. We lived in this little apartment, and uh, we were looking for uh, a home. And so we went out, we'd go out on Sundays, on the weekends, and we'd go visit homes. You know, realtors would take us around. I'd be thinking, boy, if I could just live here. If I could just have a home, my own place that I owned, a backyard, a fence, all that stuff, I'd just I'd be happy. That's what I need, you know. And we do this, and we go from thing to thing. We buy things. We accumulate things our whole life, chasing after them, thinking that's what's going to make us happy. And, you know, we're rational people, so we put this together, and we think, okay, you know, things are what we need to make us happy, and what we need to get things is money, is more money. So what we really need to be happy is more money. And that's the way we live now. Um, that is a common, common mindset. And what I'm going to do is I want to kind of paint with a broad brush. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm going to welcome you. I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you're here kicking the tires, wondering what this whole church thing's about, or maybe, you know, you're watching online and you're trying to figure out what church is about. Maybe you never read the Bible or whatever. So I'm going to paint, just warn you, I'm mostly speaking to Christians today, but I'm going to warn you, I'm going to paint with a broad brush because I want to talk about what we call in the church world, the world, and we didn't make up this, this term. This terminology is kind of a term of art. It's used in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, and it's meant to refer to the prevailing non-Christian culture, okay? So I want to talk kind of broadly about that, and you know, there, there are exceptions, and so I'll give you that, but here's, here's my premise, and I'm going to see if I, can, if I can demonstrate it to you, and that is that the world, the prevailing non-Christian culture, the most important thing to them generally across the board is money because that's what they think is the key to them being happy. Now, let me give you a few examples. And, you know, we're, we just won the World Series, right, the, the Houston Astros. And I remember when Carlos Correa, last year, he became a free agent. And look, we all knew what was going to happen, right? He's a free agent we're going to offer him some money, but somebody's going to offer him more, and he's going to take it, right? And that's exactly what happened. I think the Astros offered him $32 million a year, and then the Twins offered him 35. So for $3 million more, he went for it, you know? And I'm not, I'm not you know, bashing Carlos Correa. I like him, but this is true like of pro athletes. So we know it's true. Like, you know, you've got to have 35 because 32 million is not enough, right? And it's like Pavlov's dog, you know, with like these, these free agents. It's like whoever gives them more money, it's like you, know, you can just wave it and they'll just follow, you know, wherever, right? It's so obvious. But, you know, we're kind of like that too, you know? I mean, you hear people tell stories about how, well, yeah, they offered me $10,000 more. And, I, you know, I know I've been in this church and I've been here my whole life. But I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to move to Atlanta, you know? 
that extra $10,000. They root up their family. They move for a little bit more money. Or you can look at the political world. Perfect example. Political consultants. The first thing they tell candidates, anybody who's running for office, you've heard this phrase before. What is it? It's the economy, stupid. That's what they tell them. It's the economy, stupid. The most important thing to understand as a political candidate is that the most important thing to people is the state of the economy. And the state of the economy is the most important thing to people because money is the most important thing to people. And then there's all the get-rich-quick schemes. And I'm going to pick on Tony Robbins. You know, he may be a great guy. I've never read any of his books. So, you know, you know peace on him and good luck. But, um, you know, maybe he's a great guy. But I think he, he's a good example because I, I looked him up. You know, I thought, well, I'm going to read something about his background because, you know, he's like a consultant to help people get rich. So I thought, well, he must have, like, gotten rich and then he learned how to do it. And now he's telling other people. You know, that's not even what happened. He actually got rich by teaching people how to get rich. So people are willing to pay people who don't even know how to get rich to tell them how to get rich. That's how desperate they are to get rich. Or how about the lottery? Now, I've never, I'll, I'll just tell you, I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life and no judgment on anybody who has. I mean, Cindy and I used to go to Las Vegas twice a year and we played blackjack. That's what we liked, right? A lot better odds, but we didn't play it to try to get money. We played it because we just enjoyed it, you know? But if you do the lottery, I mean, you know this, you know the mindset. You're thinking like the Powerball, it gets up to like 200, 250 million dollars. And you're thinking, yeah, I know it's a long shot, but if I win it, I'll be happy for the rest of my life. I'll never need anything else, right? Do you know the, the chances of winning the lottery, the Powerball, you actually have a better chance of being struck and crushed by a meteorite. It's true, it's true. Or being struck by lightning, throw that one in too. Or you actually have a better chance of becoming the president of the United States. <laughs> How about that? Or here's my favorite. You actually have a better chance of going to the ER with a pogo stick related injury. <laughs> okay, and you say, well, I don't even use a pogo stick. Never been on one. Exactly, that's the point. It's a long shot. And then you can look at all the crimes that are committed because of money. How about Bernie Madoff? Ponzi schemes, fraud, embezzlement, bank robberies and theft. Everybody trying to get money because they think money's what's going to make them happy and they're willing to break the law to get it. The world thinks that money will solve all their problems. Now this is a message on giving. And so the point of all of this is this. That when we take what the world seeks after more than anything else, commits crimes to get, pays money to others to teach them how to get it, and which they think is the key to their happiness, when we take that, and as Christians, we give it away, you know what that says? That says there's something more important in this world than money. It's a powerful, powerful testimony. Here's the key question you could ask. If we put this one to the world. If I, ask, if I ask the world, which is the key to your happiness, more money or more of God, what would they say? What would we say as Christians? And that really is the dichotomy. In fact, it's a dichotomy that Jesus recognized, God or money. Because here's what he said. He said, no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And here's what I think he was saying. 
When he's talking about serving, the word that's being used means to be holy and entirely under command to. In other words, almost to be enslaved to. And this is the way it is. When you think that money is the key to your happiness, you'll do anything to get it, right? And so what ends up happening is God will make demands on your life about maybe you should help that person out. Maybe you should give, maybe you should tithe, maybe you should do these things. And then you see that as being almost a distraction, like you're trying to take away from my happiness, And you end up despising God if you're chasing totally after money. I like the example of uh, Scrooge. You know, this is the holiday season. You know, Scrooge, you remember how just angry he was all the time? Bob Cratchit, you know, wanting to put just another lump of coal on the fire. You know, and Scrooge's like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you, you know? Scrooge hated God. He hated everybody. But, you know, he was all about the money because he thought the money was, was the key. And so he despised Everybody and God and everybody, everything else, you know, which, uh, you know, I, li- I, li- I like Scrooge as a character because, and, and Aisha Darwish will tell you this, um, we have a little tradition, and we had a tradition at my law firm, it's carried over to where we are now, that, you know, every Christmas, when it rolls around like the 23rd of December, I'll ask Aisha, she can probably recite this, I'll say, um, like Scrooge did, I'll say, well, I suppose uh, this year you're wanting the whole day off for Christmas, you know? <laughs> And every year she says yes, and I, every year I give in. Uh, you know, but like he said, you know, it's a terrible excuse to rob a man's pocket every 25th of December, you know, but that's the mindset. That's the mindset. So you'll, you'll be devoted to the one, and, um, you know, you'll despise the other. You'll love the one, and you'll hate the other. It's a real dichotomy. We know this is true, but it actually took God and human, God to take on human flesh bust up into space-time history to tell us this. But we recognize when he says it, it really is true. Now, the other thing that giving does, giving demonstrates to the world that there is something more important than money. That's one of the things that giving does for us as Christians. The other thing that it does is it demonstrates the character of God to the world. You know, we're charismatics in this church. If you're new here or you're watching online, and we don't apologize for that, we believe uh, that the power of God, the same power that was present in the first century that healed people, that caused people to prophesy, that changed the world, that turned the world upside down, that that same power is present here today. Yeah, and I'm glad that we believe that. I don't shy away from that. I'm a rational man, but I believe in the power of God. I've seen it. I've seen too much of it. But you know what happens sometimes with charismatics and, and, and just Christians in general is they run after the power of God more than they do the character of God. We want the power of God more than we want the character of God. And we should want his character as much as we want his power. And his character involves the characteristic of generosity. God is generous. And so when we give, we're demonstrating his character to the world. And then the third thing that giving does is it's a hedge against greed. One of the things that Jesus said was to be on your guard, against every form of greed, because greed comes in a lot of forms. He said, because even when a person has an abundance, his life does not consist of his possessions. And so one form of greed is holding on to money instead of giving it away. And so what happens is when we can condition ourselves to give, we give regularly, what we're doing is we're conditioning conditioning ourselves not to be greedy. Now, all of this is a very, very long introduction to a very, very short message. Um, Because what I want to talk about today is three levels of giving. We just talked about giving in general, but I want to talk about three different levels of giving. 
and then talk about how God responds to each level. In other words, when we engage in this particular level of giving, how does God respond? And here's the good thing. If you're watching online or you're here today and you're not a believer, you've never read the Bible, one of the great things about the Bible is you can get to know God because you can see how the Lord responds to Israel in the Old Testament and other people. And then you can see Jesus, God in human flesh, a person who predicted his own resurrection and then made it happen. You can trust what he says and you can see how he responds to people when they give. And so you can get to know God through the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three levels of giving. We're going to talk about what each level means, what it is, and then how God responds to us at each level when we give in that way. So the first level of giving is what's referred to as tithing. This is a very churchy word, tithing. And if you're not familiar, you're not used to going to church, you may not know what it means, but what it really means is a tenth. And if you look back in the Old Testament, this was a practice that was established by God with Israel where they were required to give the first tenth of their increase in whatever it was, their crops, their livestock, their money, whatever. And that was considered the tithe. It wasn't the last ten, it was the first ten. So it's not the stuff that you get at TJ Maxx that used to be at Nordstrom's. <laughs> it's the good stuff, okay? And... Um, it belonged to God, and he made it very clear that it belonged to him. And you say, well, why would he give us something that belongs to him just to give it back to him? Well, we could go down that rabbit trail. My guess is it's probably because he wanted to teach us to give, right? So he gives it to us, doesn't belong to you, and then you need to give it back to me. So the most famous probably scripture, I think the best and most instructive one about tithing is in Malachi, it's in Malachi 3, 8 through 11, and I think it's instructive because it talks about what tithing is and what happens if you don't do it, what happens if you do, and how God responds to it. And it starts in verse 8, and just to set this up, so Malachi was a prophet. Israel has been in captivity in Babylon. Now they've returned back to Israel, but things aren't going well, okay? They, probably there's, from the scripture, it looks like there was probably a drought, maybe a famine, um, the economy's not very strong. People aren't happy. And they're thinking, does God love us? You know, why is, why is this happening to us? And here's God's response through the prophet Malachi. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? They've robbed God. Why, why does he call it robbery? Because the tithe doesn't belong to them. The, the tithe belongs to God. And when you keep something that doesn't belong to you, knowing that it doesn't belong to you, that's the same thing as stealing. You know, you don't have to be a lawyer. I, I mean, I went to law school for three years, but I, I think I knew that one before I even went to law school. Right? And so this is, uh, this is the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And we know, you know, if we steal in regular life, like if I steal from G or I steal from somebody else, there's some bad consequences that can come for that in the natural, you know, um, because, you know, the law can come after you, can end up, you know, in jail, whatever. Um, but what about stealing from God? You know, isn't that worse than even stealing from somebody else? But that's the way he sets it up. And then he says in verse 9, he says, So, as a result, he, uh, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. 
Now, let me make something clear. I'm speaking now, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm speaking to Christians. So if you're not a Christian, you're listening to this, this doesn't really apply to you. But if you're a believer and you said that you're following Jesus, you've committed your life to the Lord, you want to live according to his commandments, then this, this is a message for us. And what he's saying is what happens when you don't tithe is that it brings a curse on you. And we could chase that rabbit trail, but, you know, as far as what a curse is and how it works and all of that, it sounds very, you know, kind of magical and all. But I think from the rest of these verses here, what it really means is that God kind of removes his hand. Because what he says is, if you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, then I'm going to rebuke the devourer. And I think the devourer is the person, the entity uh, of, of Satan who ends, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. And so... What the Lord is saying, if you do what you're supposed to do, if you tithe, then I'll take care, I'll rebuke the devourer. But if you don't, then I just kind of remove my hand. He's going to have his way with you. And what this curse looks like, you know, it can manifest in different ways. With them, it was probably, it looks like it was a drought and maybe a famine and bad economic times. You know, for us personally, what it can be is like, um, you know, your car keeps breaking down or... Um, you never seem to have enough money because of health problems or something that comes up and ends up costing more money. Um, and you never seem to get caught up. So how do you end the curse? Um, you end it by doing what it says in verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And see, some people say, well, you know, I was, you know, I'm given half a tithe. Well, if a tithe is 10%, half a tithe is not a tithe, right? It's uh, it's, uh, it's a full 10%. And so I think maybe that's what some of the people were doing here is they were not fully giving the tithe. But the Lord says the way that you can, you can end this is you can bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and then what I'm, I'm gonna open the heavens, these heavens that have been closed up because the devourer, the enemy wants to make sure you don't have rain for your crops. I'm gonna open it back up and then I'm gonna rebuke the devourer and things are gonna be going well again. Now, um, gosh, it's really quiet in here. <laughs> I know this is hard. Uh, I'm just the messenger, though. Um, so what's God's attitude toward tithing? He expects it. Right? He expects it. You know, so we tithe, you know, and then we walk down the street going like this, you know. <laughs> All right, good, I'm tithing. The Lord's saying, no, that's what you're supposed to do. That's expected. It's not your money. Give it back to the Lord, Okay. It's kind of like, you know, in the Fiddler household, uh, we have, we believe in the division of labor. We're big fans of Adam Smith, the Wealth of Nations. Some of you read that? We're a very highly educated group in here. Some of you have read that? You know who Adam Smith is? Anybody know who Adam Smith is? Okay, good. All right. Um, so anyway, we, we believe in the division of labor. So, and this may not be the way you, you handle your, uh, your, your family, your home, and that's fine. No judgment. Uh, but, you know, I work pretty hard. I work a lot of hours. And Cindy's pretty much, you know, responsible for everything that happens at home. But one of the things that she asks me to do is to take out the trash. That's one of my few duties. And it's not very onerous. It's not a, it's not a big ask, you know, but she expects it of me. And so sometimes, you know, we'll be sitting around on the couch and it'll, I can tell, you know, that she's maybe upset with something I've done or not as thrilled with me as maybe she always is or usually is. And, uh, and I'll say, I'll say, well, you know, I took the trash out today. You know? <laughs> you know? And she's like, and she'll look at me and go, whatever, you know. Why? Because she's, you know, it's expected of me, right? There's no blessing that comes with it. It's just expected, right? Okay, so that's the tithe. 
And if we have any doubt about this, we can just look to the New Testament, right? Because some people say, well, you know, isn't that the Old Testament law, you know, whatever. Well, Jesus affirmed it. So here's what Jesus said. Jesus was talking to the religious leaders, to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, which these are spices. So they were, they were faithful, so faithful of tithing, they would actually tithe off of the increase in spices or whatever that they received. Um, he says, you tithe these things and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, look, you, you, great, you know, you don't really get any credit for that. You, you should have, we should be talking about love and justice and mercy, not tithing. And you're getting all excited about the fact that you do those things and you've neglected the weightier things. Okay, so this is baseline stuff, even according to Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you know, and things seem like they're not, you know, it just seems like financially you could never get ahead. And, you know, maybe, you know, like I said, you've got the problems around the home. It keeps costing you money, unexpected expenses. And you come to one of the elders or you come to Chris or Pastor G and you say, you know, here's what's going on in my life. The first thing we're going to ask you is, are you tithing? And it's not because we as your church need your money. Um, we, we tithe really as a church, we tithe to every nation on top of that. We give money on top of that. So we trust in the Lord. We know we're being faithful and that he'll continue to bless us. We want you to tithe because we don't want you to be under a curse. It's that simple. We love you. We want you to be financially successful and prosperous. Okay. So tithing, this is finances 101. Okay. And I know it's not, it's not easy to hear. It's not easy to hear, but, um, you know, this is just Bible stuff. The second type of giving is what I call surplus giving. And surplus giving is exactly that. It's giving out of your surplus. So, you know, here's the way it works. You get a paycheck or you get money, that's your revenue, and then you have expenses, things, what you need to pay in order to live on, your food, clothing, and, and, and you know, where you live. And then everything between that and your revenue, that's discretionary money that you can do whatever you want with. Um, that's the surplus. And that's where really, you know, when we talk about having an abundance and being wealthy, that's where, that's where that comes from. Because if you have, the definition of abundance is having more than you need. And uh, really, that's probably the situation for most of us in here. But what happens, we all know what happens, right, is we've got a level of revenue, we've got what we actually need to live on, and we've got this discretionary, this discretionary surplus, and we end up spending all the way up to what we make, to our revenue, and we have nothing left to give or do anything else with, and we feel poor. It makes us feel poor because we have no margin, right? There's no surplus, now, I like, uh, some of you, if you're, from, if you're from San Antonio, you may have heard of Rick Godwin. I like what Rick Godwin said. He's a pastor of a big church in San Antonio, and he preached at a church we were at once, and he said, the first thing you have to do if you want to help the poor is to make sure you're not one of them. And what he was talking about, it's not that you can't give if you don't have money. You can. He's talking about surplus giving. If you make yourself poor by spending everything that you have, you have nothing left over to give. The surplus giving. But you know, I know what I know. I'm just like you. I know what the, I know the thought process. So the thought process is, well, Lord, you know, I really feel like I need that thing. And what happens if I spend that money that's part of the surplus, then 
who's going to take care of me if I want these other things? But the Bible anticipates this, and that's what we're going to look at. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Corinth, and here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. He's talking specifically about giving. He says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly, in other words, he who gives sparingly, will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So see, his, his point, he, what he, he actually addresses the potential objection, which is what happens if I give this money away that's discretionary, I wanted to spend on myself, who's going to take care of me? And this is what Paul is saying is don't worry about that because God can make all grace abound to you so that you will always have a sufficiency in everything and you may have an abundance for every good deed. And so what happens is when we give out of our surplus, God loves that. It says God loves a cheerful giver. That's his response to surplus giving. And that's because when he gives us whatever we have, 10% of it belongs to him. We give that back to him. And then we take what actually belongs to us. The 90% belongs to us. We can do with it whatever we want. And when we take that and we give it, that makes God happy. He loves it. He loves it when we're cheerful about that. And we can give cheerfully when we're giving out of our surplus. And what happens when we give out of our surplus is it brings a blessing. This is, this is the response. God loves a cheerful giver, but also there's a blessing that comes with it. Jesus said it this way. He said, given it shall be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, they're pour into your lap. Okay? So in other words, if you give and you're generous, if you sow generously, then you'll reap generously. God will make sure it comes back to you. Now, why does this happen? It's because he wants us to be, like Jesus said, a purse that doesn't wear out. So as we continue to give, we make ourselves useful to God. He wants to pour more money into us, to have a bigger margin, to have more of a surplus, so we can continue to give and we can be useful to him. So God loves a cheerful giver. He loves when we give out of our surplus, and he blesses us for it. I remember um, back when I had my own law practice, for the first 15 years, I worked as what's called a contingency uh, fee lawyer. So I didn't get paid until my clients got paid. In other words, if, if we won the case and there was a settlement, then I would get my percentage fee out of that. And it was tough because the actual, the average shelf life for the type of cases I handled was 18 months. Sometimes they'd run on for like two or three years. So I would work, sometimes put more than $100,000 of my time into a case plus my own money, you know, hoping that if we win and we settle the case, then I would, I would get paid. And so what happened was during the summers, it was always a little slow in the summers for a very practical reason. That's because the defense attorneys, the, the attorneys who defended the companies that I sued would uh, go on vacation and they were the ones who settled the cases and then the checks were cut and all of that. So things would slow down and they'd get tight during the summer. Well, one summer rolled around and it was really weird because I was just praying one day and I felt like the Lord was saying, I want you to start giving 10% on the revenue from the law firm. The way we operated, if you're an accountant or whatever, we were subchapter S. So really, you know, I pay, I tithe. We tithe off of what we got out of the firm, but it came down to us through, uh, 
through a subchapter S type situation. So when I'm, we're paying 10% off of the revenue of the firm, that's way more than tithing. Most law firms, businesses, you're looking at like maybe a 35% profit margin. So that means out of every $100, there's 35 that's a profit. And we were given, if I'm given 10% of that, I'm given like a third of, out of my surplus, right? A third of my profit, 30%, 33%. But we did it. And we did it for two or three months. And then at the end of that two or three month period, um, I had a case that I'd been handling for a couple of years and it was a really hard case, but the client had been done wrong and I kept trying to figure out how I was gonna win it because the evidence was difficult. It was, it was difficult legally, but the case settled and it settled for more money than I'd ever settled a case in my life. Still one of the biggest settlements I'd ever had. Why? I think it was just because I was faithful. I gave. We, we were giving, given it shall be given, unto you. We were faithful because God wanted to teach me, to teach us that we could trust him with money, that we could give it away out of our surplus and he would pour it back in. All right. The third type of giving is sacrificial giving. And sacrificial giving is exactly what it sounds like. It's emptying your bank account and giving it away. It's selling things you own to give money to someone in need. It's giving when it really hurts to give because it costs you something. Uh, the new church, the New Testament church experienced this and you can see an example of it in Acts chapter two, verse 44, where it says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So sacrificial giving is giving until it hurts and it's the highest level of giving. And one of the best examples of sacrificial giving can be found in a story um, where Jesus, and this is, can be found in Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44. Jesus is hanging out at the temple. And not only at the temple, but he's sitting near the treasury. And we might find this offensive, but he's actually watching how much money people are putting in the treasury. And this is how it starts. It says, and he sat down, he being Jesus, opposite the treasury, and he began observing how the people were putting money into, their tre into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. They had a lot of margin, they had a lot of money, big ties, surplus giving. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Why? For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned and all that she had to live on. She didn't give out of her margin. She didn't give out of her abundance or her surplus. But out of what she needed to live on. This is sacrificial giving. And what's Jesus' response? He praises her. He praises her to the other disciples. He doesn't say that, you know, she was made a millionaire like Tony Robbins uh, or anything like that. He doesn't say there was some financial blessing that came. Maybe there was, I don't know. But that's not the point of it. Jesus praised her. He said, look, she put in more than everybody else. And here's the thing about sacrificial giving. When you get to the level of sacrificial giving, the people who get to that level, who are willing to give what they have, what they need to live on and trust God because they want to bless other people, they don't need the financial blessing in return. They just want God's praise. They want his love and his approval. 
for it. It's the highest level of giving. And the thing is, it's the type of giving that makes us the most like the Lord. Because it's what he did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only begotten son. It's not like he had others in the wings. He gave all that he had. And then Jesus did the same on the cross. Sacrificial giving. Now, as I was praying about how to end this message, the, um, the verse that came to mind is one that actually occurs, occurs three times in two chapters in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter three and four. And it's this, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And I thought that was odd because I have not looked at that verse in a long, long time. But it came to mind. And I thought, well, maybe what's going on is that when I stand up here and speak, maybe the Holy Spirit is going to actually move on people. You know, this is not, um, this is not a TED Talk. You know, this is not hopefully, uh, you know, I don't stand up here and think that I can woo you with my eloquence. I'm not naturally very eloquent. Uh, but what I do trust is that when I stand up and speak, that the Lord can touch your hearts that maybe he can, I can be useful to him. And maybe what's happened as you've been listening is you've been thinking, well, you know, I've been thinking about tithing. I know I probably should. That's probably the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart. And so today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Or maybe things have been going really well. You know, maybe... You've been blessed at work, and for the first time, you've got some money in the bank, and you're thinking, you know, I've got some extra money. What are we going to do with this? And you've been thinking, maybe I should give it away. Maybe I should give some of it away. Maybe I should help this person I know needs it, or maybe I should give to a ministry or a good cause. You've been thinking about that, but you didn't know, and today you really felt that tug. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Maybe you tithe, maybe you, give, maybe you give out of your surplus, but you've been feeling like the Lord's been asking you to make a real sacrifice in some area of your life to give. And you know it's gonna hurt and you're wondering if I give this thing away, if I give this away or if I give this money away, I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I feel like the Lord's calling me to do it. Today, if you hear, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He is always faithful. He is always faithful. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, for those that you have touched today, Lord, Lord, I pray that they would act, Lord, on what they've heard from you, Lord. Lord, you said that those who hardened their heart and didn't act in obedience, Lord, that they did not enter your rest, Lord. And I know that's what we all ultimately want. We want your peace, Lord. The things that we search after, Black Friday, buying new things, thinking it's going to give us peace or joy, Lord, they ultimately fail, Lord. But there's your rest, Lord, and your rest comes from being obedient, Lord, and trusting in you, Lord. And I pray today, Lord, as people step out, as they begin to tithe if they haven't, Lord, if they begin to give out of their surplus, Lord, if, Lord, they, they give sacrificially because you've been calling them to do that, Lord, I pray. Lord, that they would experience your rest, Lord, your peace, 
and your assurance, Lord, that not only are they demonstrating to the world, Lord, that we, Lord, as Christians, Lord, that there is something more important than money in the world, Lord, and that's you, Lord, and loving you, Lord, and that in doing so, Lord, they'll demonstrate your character and your generosity to a world, Lord, that is clinging to money as its only God because it doesn't know what else can save them, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.